Welcome to the Fergus Falls Business Spotlight Podcast, the show that takes a deep dive into local businesses and the individuals that run our community. To guide you along the way, here's your host, Jacob Bittner. All right, welcome into another episode. Thank you guys for tuning in, or I don't know if you tune into a podcast or you just load it up or download it, but thank you guys for listening. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I'm here this morning with a guy. I'm really excited to talk to this guy because I think he's been, he was, you know, he's a staple in our community. He's been really, really involved for a long time. A lot of people know who Wade Swenson is. So, uh, Good morning. How are you doing this morning, good, Wade? Good morning. Thanks, Jake. It's yeah, great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to hear your story. Um, spent many, many, many years as the uh, oncologist at Lake Region. That's right. Um, but this morning, we're going to be talking about ruralcancer.org, mm-hmm. this new nonprofit organization that's popping up here. Um, tied in with some, I, I don't know too much about it, so I'm going to learn about it with the people as you explain it. Um, Perfect. But we are, we're going to get into some fun conspiracy theories Can't surrounding wait. cancer. Can't wait. Um, what causes cancer, all that stuff, basically everything. We're drinking water out of a plastic water bottle. That probably mm-hmm. causes cancer. But we're drinking Stumbino's coffee, which prevents cancer. It does. Dang. Let's oh, just say. Let's just say. <laughs> let's just say. Um, but I'm really excited to get into your story, man. Hear about your background. Hear about... Uh, you know, your time at Lake Region, your transition into this uh, new organization and all yep. of it. I, um, I met you at Outstate uh, a few times, handful of times prior to actually getting con- your contact info. Uh, Emily yep. Westergaard, who I just had on the show, um, you guys are tied together in this yeah. new venture. And yep. uh, we, yep. we kind of talked about cancer a little bit, but we were more talking about her uh, antique goods. Mm-hmm. So this episode's really going to do a deep dive into that industry, and we're going to uncover some stuff, and I'm pretty excited for it. Perfect. So, yeah. Um, anyways, before we get going, I do have to thank Stumbino's for this delicious coffee we have in our cups this morning. It's very good. Papua it's, New Guinea. It's uh, actually, I think, yeah, yeah, this is Papua New Guinea. Yep, this is the Papua New Guinea we're drinking right now. So it's delicious. It is good. I've got such a rotation now, I never know what I'm drinking. I never really know. It's just they give me the stuff and I just drink it. You know, it's delicious. It's all good to me. I, ne- I don't think I've had a bad had a bad bag of coffee from Stumbino's yet. So <laughs> It's funny. So I've known Greg for quite a while. We went to high school together in Moorhead. And I, I remember when he had his roasting at what is now Toast. Right. And he... I wasn't drinking coffee. I didn't start to drink coffee until my early 40s. And huh. I just never enjoyed it. Um, I love it now. I love coffee culture. I love everything about coffee. But at the time, I remember meeting him. He handed me a... He made... I don't remember the, the the type of coffee it was, but he handed it to me. Try this. I tried it. I had to turn around. I couldn't like hide my facial expression of how off-putting it was it was uh it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's just it, coffee I, is kind of one of you it's don't an acquired taste. it is an acquired yes, taste it yes. is an acquired taste but uh once you acquire a taste for stumbinos you can't go mm-hmm. you can't go any other direction i feel like it is really good um, I, I like their um cappuccino there's their uh their stronger blends yeah like i just was in there the other day and, and he gave me a little sample i don't know if they're going to be able to bring it to production um because there's just a lot of things that go into it but he had like some instant coffee some oh, uh, freeze-dried okay. instant coffee and he mixed up a little batch of that and i've had like instant folgers and some other instant coffees that yep. i were just like Bleh. but that yep. was like 
felt like I was just drinking a fresh mm-hmm. cup of Stumbinos. It was yep. so good, so good. So maybe someday yep. they'll figure out the production side of that, the marketing side of that uh, instant coffee too, and yep. you can bring that out in your yeah. uh, hiking bag or something with you. you I, know? I was in Alaska just a couple of weeks ago, and that was a lifesaver is the Starbucks instant coffee. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. And they do an all right job. Yep. They do an okay job, but well, they're not Stumbinos. Not Stumbinos. Yeah. Absolutely. On top of Stumbinos, I do want to thank the, uh, the rest of my sponsors here, Swan Lake resort and campground. You guys are the best, um, elevate dispensary, Victor Lundin's company, hotel eight and, uh, Biffley's bookmark. So I appreciate all you guys supporting the show and, uh, support those businesses who support this show. Cause they, uh, you know, they don't have to be doing this by any means. And the fact that they want to come along and uh, pitch in money or products or whatever they're doing to support the show, they don't have to be doing that. So go support these guys. Great. So, um, all right. You mentioned that you went to high school in Moorhead. Yep. Was it, were you born in Moorhead? Born in Michigan. My parents were grad students when I was born. And so my dad was a grad student at Ball State University and then the University of Indiana. And uh, so I was born in Coldwater, Michigan, but it's in second grade, or no, sorry, two years old, my ki- my parents moved to Moorhead. My dad taught at Moorhead State for 30 plus years. Okay. So, so your dad was a teacher. What'd your yep, mom do? Yep. She was a nurse. She so was a she nurse. She worked okay. at St. Luke's, then Merit Care. Um, she was out of there, retired before Sanford came along. Okay. So- um, She did a little work with hospice. I think that's kind of where I got my interest in this space, but- Okay. Really, nothing I can really put my finger on. So, but. were you super smart growing up? <laughs> <laughs> like, were you were you just like a geni- little genius no, kid no. or not? No, I, I had to study. My brother, my brother's <laughs> younger than me. My brother's three years younger, and he basically followed the same path. I went to Moorhead State. My dad taught there as free tuition. From there, I went to um, medical school residency. My brother did the same thing. He just did everything better. He went to medical school at university of Michigan and residency at Johns Hopkins and all these crazy things. But so by, by comparison, I don't feel like I'm super smart because my brother just was, you're always living in your brother's shadows. He was was a younger brother too. Dang. I know. How much younger? Three years. And what field is he in now? Uh, Interventional radiology. Okay. Um, make that make sense to me. So he, he reads films like the radiologist, but he does okay. a lot of biopsies. Like if somebody has a stroke, he'll go in and puts a coil up into their brain and stop them from bleeding. <clears throat> wow. Um, he'll do a biopsy on a mass and he'll do it with a CAT scan to guide where he's, or an ultrasound so we can see where the needle is. Nice. Whenever, by the way, whenever I get into talking with these, with like Emily, there were some terms that I'm like, you know what? I'm just an, my vocabulary is relatively uh, small. There's I mean, it's pretty a, small when it comes to the medical I, field, I, I, for I've sure. Heard that when you go to medical school, you double your vocabulary because you're learning basically two words for everything. There's a Latin word. There's an English word. Um, it's a lot of jargon. So we right. we're really guilty of of using too much jargon and right. trying to. I mean, that's one of the things I enjoy actually. Is I, I enjoy teaching because I like t- talking to patients and you can really read body language to know if they're understanding what you're saying. And so it's not uncommon for me to, when I'm in the office for the first time with a patient and we're talking about some life-changing event, some life-changing diagnosis, a lot of times you'll come in and there'll be multiple family members. They have their arms crossed and they're very, have a closed posture. And you know that they're understanding and on the same page if their body language changes and they're, kind of have an open stance in their huh. hand. It, it's, it's, it's really important. It's really important. It's yeah. to pick up on these, on these clues that you're communicating well. Otherwise 
you kind of have to re, you know approach it from a different perspective or say it in a different way so that they understand what's happening. Yeah. So growing up in Moorhead, um, sounds like you went to college at Moorhead State. Yep. Did you have uh, jobs in high school? Uh, Sunmart. I worked at the grocery store. Yep. Um, that's where I met my wife. Okay. Um, we're divorced now. We were married for 22 years. Um, she still lives in Fergus, uh, about a mile from where I am. Um, but we met there, had a bunch of friends um, at that time at, at Sunmart. I was I was in... Um, Wait, Sunmart in... Moorhead. Moorhead. Okay. Yep. yep. Not there anymore. But, uh, but yeah, so then um, the grocery store, that's where I worked. Gotcha. Um, little bit of during college, I did a little bit of chemistry work as a chemistry major. So work with some of the um, industries in the industrial park in Fargo who needed chemical like expertise. And so huh. did a little bit of that, but yeah, otherwise I didn't, I haven't had a lot of jobs. Okay. So, um, and you said Moorhead state, where'd you go to med school or graduate school? How does that, how yeah, does that so college after, process yep. work? Cause you went to school for eight years or 10 years or how does that work? Yeah, a lot. Um, so four years of of college with chemistry major, four years of medical school, I went to UND and Grand Forks. And so really a rural um, healthcare focus. Um, from there, I did three years of internal medicine residency at the University of Iowa. And I got my master's in public health and epidemiology. And then I did three years of uh, oncology fellowship at the University of Iowa. So everything was, uh, the thing I liked about that, everything was really, again, rural focused, University of North Dakota, University of Iowa, there was, I did this this master's degree in public health, basically focusing on cancer in the environment, so cancer in rural areas. Um, and then I, from there, I came to Fergus. It was uh, I got married just uh, just before medical school, and my first my daughter was born just before I moved to Iowa, and then my son was born just when he moved here to Fergus. Gotcha. So you have two kids. Two kids. Two kids. And uh, how old are they? So Aiden is 18. He just went down to the University of Minnesota Twin Cities campus on Monday. And then my daughter is 24, and she is in a first-year med student at University, Medical College of Wisconsin in Green Bay. Thank and you. Green Bay is a really nice town. I was yeah. very impressed. I went to a Packers-Vikings game. One of, it's, I can't imagine I'm ever going to have a better uh, NFL football experience than going and watching the Vikings shut out the Packers uh, on Christmas Eve wow. at Lambeau Field. What a Christmas. What part. a Christmas, dude. <laughs> what a Christmas it was. So, yeah, had, yeah, Green Bay is awesome. I had uh, Viking, <laughs> Viking season tickets for 11 years. So back in the Metrodome Fire's first year, then to TCF, and then to the U.S. Bank Stadium. You still have tickets? No. no. Got rid of them after 11 years. It just oh, became, okay. it was really, really fun for a long time, but eventually the kids weren't as excited, friends weren't as excited to go. It just became more expensive to stay in a hotel down yeah. there. There's so many different, it, it was really, really fun. And then it just became a little bit more work. Gotcha. So you really only had a few jobs and then kind of started with college and these residencies. Yep. And then when you came to Fergus, I assume that's when everything started with Lake Region. Yep. So I was hired. So Paul Etzel was the oncologist who was doing outreach from Sanford to Fergus for about. So what's the tie between Sanford and, and Lake Region or how does that all work? So back then there was no tie. It was just, they were just doing outreach to provide oncology services here. Dr. Etzel, Paul Etzel left Sanford and joined the Fergus Falls Medical Group. And this was back in early 2000s, probably 2002. And I joined here in 2005. And 
I worked for the Lake Region Medical Group. And so there was the clinic, the Lake Region Medical Group, and the hospital, Lake Region Healthcare. And in 2010, they integrated, they merged. They're still separate entities, but they they have, they sh- they, the clinic is a service of the hospital now with an independent doctor group. And so, yeah, so from 2005 to 2010, and then after 2010, it was really, it was a good move as far as the, um, it was an unsustainable model to have the clinic and the physicians um, employ all those nurses. The way healthcare is reimbursed, that doesn't make sense anymore. And so um, there was lots of changes over those years. We had paper charts. We had we had a small. I don't know if you remember that old clinic in front of the current where the current clinic is, but it was an old building, yep. and it really was in need of replacement. And so they have a beautiful clinic there now. The, uh, so I was, um, it was in 20, probably 2008 that the hospital board decided that they wanted to build a cancer center. So I was working as an oncologist, not in a cancer center. I was just working in the clinic and we were giving chemotherapy in the clinic, but we didn't really have a center. And so that's one of the things that's really nice about community-based healthcare. And I think community-based healthcare is a gift. It, you need to you know, as opposed to having another health system come to your community, provide services, when it's community-based, the community can decide what's important. And back in 2008, they said they needed a cancer center because people were driving an hour for treatments that they could easily get here if they were offered here. And so that was, it was really interesting because the CEO before, Ed Mel, who was here for 40, 40 years as the CEO, he was told that they just didn't have the numbers to support a cancer center. And so then Peter Jacobson came along to, after Ed Mill retired and hired another um, consulting group. They said, yeah, you have the numbers, but I'm not sure that you have enough. You, you barely have enough people to support this, but you can support it. But I don't think you can raise the money to get this done. And then people like Gary Spies, uh, Larry Dorn, um, there was a number of them, but they were on the the hospital foundation board, and they raised ten million dollars. Sh- just shocking to these consultants, but they were able to build this cancer program, and so it was by all measures a success. Just because it was, um, the patients were three times more than the consultants projected. Huh. It was kind of one of those situations, that which is not good. I mean, that's not good. You're but, right. You're yeah. Right. But when you're thinking about all the people you're helping, right. these are people that would be going elsewhere and driving and disrupting right. their lives. Right. And so it was really. I mean, so many takeaways from that. It was. It was. You know, if you build it, they'll come. Sort of a idea. Um, it really was interesting, just because when you think about it, cancer care is so centralized. There's so many. There's so many. Um, counties, I think 66% of the counties of rural counties don't have any cancer services. Um, this was really rare. And it really became more obvious how rare this this program is here. Talking to people, when, uh, it was in 2022, I went to the National Rural Health Association and gave a talk just describing my 17 years as an oncologist in Fergus Falls and talking to um, a room about um, my, my career. But before that, Emily Westergaard, who I've known now for many years, she is an oncology fellow at La Crosse um, at Gunderson Health and in Wisconsin. And she um, and I have she's shadowed me in various times over her you know, undergrad, um, 
medical school residency and now she's in fellowship and she's almost done. And then my daughter, who's now a, a medical student, we were looking at the literature, the medical literature about rural cancer. And everything we saw was just all these negative things about how it's just worse in outcomes and people don't do as well. There are so few examples of success stories. And what we have in Fergus was a success story. Hmm. And so it was really fun to kind of share that. And after the talk, I met with a number of people who came up and talked. They were, they were researchers in rural health who had never met a rural oncologist. There are people from all over the country. And you know we still communicate. Uh, University of Iowa, University of South Carolina, Washington University, um, in Seattle. And they it was really interesting that it became clear that there wasn't a space for rural health, a rural, ca- a rural cancer. And so that's really what we designed. And that's how this rural health, gotcha. rural cancer data so, came about. <clears throat> so fill in there um, from... You said 2008 when the Cancer Center was founded. So 2010. It, or 2010. So, yep, 2008 was when they started this fundraising approach. And, and what was your, like how many, what was the scope of doctors there? How many oncologists were yep. there? Where? What was your position yeah. within that within that hierarchy or so, whatever? How so did that over, work? Yep, over the years we had, typically we had two oncologists, um, nurse practitioner, and a radiation oncologist. And so over the years, there's been different people in those roles. But um, for most of the time, I was the medical director, not all the time. Um, I was really, it was probably 15 years into practice, I wanted to I wanted to learn more about the business side of cancer care and healthcare. And so I went to the University of St. Thomas and got an MBA in healthcare, um, graduated last in 2022 in the spring. Dang. And it was really, really good. I met some really interesting people, and I just feel like you can you can talk to administrators. They have a different language. They're good people. They just don't look at it the same as you do as a doctor. And so, being able to find the common terminology and the understanding what motivates them. Um, interesting. Just the other example, I was talking to uh, one of the managers. Um, who I work with, and he was trying to, um, he wanted to hire another infusion nurse, and he just, I don't I just think he wasn't he wasn't communicating in, in the the language that he needed to communicate in. When I talked to that same administrator and told her that patients are getting the perception that we're too full and they're looking at going someplace else because they can't get in, that was sort of the language that the that the business side of medicine needed to hear. To hmm. to understand this, I, we just speak a different. So language. so you were um, leading that team though in yeah. Fergus for a while yep. from like two thousand for like basically up until the last yeah win. so um, probably so I I wasn't the director for the first couple of years but probably two thousand twelve to two thousand twenty two okay so just then within the last year yep. you've all this ruralcancer.org stuff yep. has started so i i ended up leaving lake region last august so august of 22 um, okay. i still live in fergus and i and this and ruralcancer.org is based in fergus we um so i i went over to lakewood which is in staples which is about an hour away and it's a critical access hospital so very small staples a town of 2,900 people. Hmm. And, um, but it's really been a nice fit for me. For one, I'm working three days a week and I have time to do the ruralcancer.org work. So that's separate from your work yeah. in Staples. Yes. That's a is. different thing. Totally okay. different. Yep. Gotcha. Yep. 
And we're looking at what, what we found is, um, yeah, the, the, we're filling a void. There's not a space where people are talking about this. And what I, we're really looking at in the next couple of weeks, what does a rebranding looking like? Is this, do, are we, are we better? Would a better fit be rural cancer Institute? Something that people could kind of wrap their minds around. Gotcha. It's really become more of an advocacy group and a think tank more than anything. We're doing okay. a lot of, of, for example, next month at Mayo Clinic, there's a rural cancer conference. We have four presentations that we're doing there. Um, we were just at the American Society of Clinical Oncology giving a talk. We were at the Association for American Medical Colleges Workforce giving a talk. And so we're giving, we're sort of telling our story right now, describing the need. Mm. And I feel like there's just going to be more opportunity to, um, to, so, to tell the story. So talk about the... Um, the because I don't know, you guys don't have like physical location. Do you guys work with hospitals then? Or like, what is this ruralcancer.org? So it's, so there's a couple different things. So it's really mostly, mostly advocacy. We want to, we hopefully, so there's also um, a consulting um, work that I do. So reachingrural.com. So reaching rural is a consulting group that I work with some of the previous people I used to work with at Lake Region. And we help hospitals develop their cancer programs, mm. especially smaller programs, because I feel like there's a lot of uh, financial tools that rural hospitals have that bigger hospitals don't. Mm. And so in a way, they're set up perfectly to be providing some of these services. Some of the things that we have found, so in Minnesota, um, patients, if they have cancer, will travel further for cancer care than any other medical diagnosis, for example, more than the ophthalmologist, the neurosurgeon, you name it. It's, it's on average about 75 miles. We also know there's a huge shortage of oncologists. Um, just in the United States, 10% of all the oncologists in the country work in three counties. Wow. So it's very centralized. Huh. And um, then um, the difference between being in the for-profit hospital side of things yep. and the nonprofit is that was that a uh, getting into a nonprofit and figuring out is there a financial aspect of that that you're you have a passion to 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 make this care affordable and keep this care is that part of your guys's organization as well or so we we've we've talked about a few different ways we could do this one is we could be more of a foundation to provide patients direct care or direct uh, financial assistance um, so there's a few different ways we haven't figured out what um, what that might look like. We're really looking more at being at showing good examples of a successful program so others can emulate that. Mm. Um, it's not so much directly in providing the care, at least in that nonprofit space. When it comes to the to the consulting work, yeah, we can help um, for-profit systems figure out how to do this. A big piece of what we do and and Lake Region did this really well was we had financial navigators, we had um, patient navigators that really helped provide that home for patients. Because if you have a cancer diagnosis, you're going to need to go to Mayo Clinic for some things. You're going to need to go to the University of Minnesota or Sanford, some things that can't be done locally. But you can always, coming back to your home, the people that actually care about you know your name and can provide some of the infusions and scans and labs and all the other things that are needed. But um, it's really important to have that medical home. Right. And so that's the model that we're really trying to advocate for because 
some of these smaller communities can't do everything, but they can do a lot. Right. And right. and when people are sick, they don't want to travel. Right. They want to get as much as they can done get done locally. And it's really a matter of trust and providing quality and doing all the important things. Right. Like that. So um, kind of just going back to the structure of ruralcancer.org, are, as far as the startup of that nonprofit, the, yep. the, I don't want to call it an ownership structure, but the operational structure yep. of it, are you guys tied in with a bigger organization? Yep. Just We have okay. a board of directors. Um, we were, were established through this uh, Secretary of State in Minnesota. Um, we have... Um, on our board, we have an accountant who's helping us with some of that. We have a, our attorney is in in Brainerd, um, and as far as income, we really haven't had much of costs. But now with this marketing, we're going to have some some costs. And so, do we have some decisions to make? Do we fund this ourselves? Do we get money from other foundations? And that's some of the important things that we're talking about here coming right. up. There are drug companies who are or not drug companies, but um, technology companies in the, uh, in the cancer space that would probably fund us. Um, okay. Do we want to do that or not? You know, it's, it's, it, that's kind of some of the decisions we have to make right now. Gotcha. So the funding the is obviously, I mean, you've got to figure out a way to yep. to, to, to make money yep. and, and bring in, because I'm assuming you're going to have a team of people that work in this, organization that are also in the industry. Otherwise you have a job in Staples, yep. you know, Emily's working down in lacrosse, like everyone's kind of got, got jobs and then they're just sort of a part of this organization yep. startup and yep. see where this thing goes kind yep. of. So there's a lot of potential with this. I think there is currently no national conference or tract of a national conference focused on real cancer. Huh. There's no, um, there's no journal, medical journal, focused on rural cancer. So I think there's a lot of things. That it would, we don't want to take all that on. We want to advocate for that. We want to work with partners to do gotcha. these things. Okay. There are companies that like are really transformative, I think. So when you think of colon cancer and and you've heard of Cologuard, where you, they advertise where you basically, they ship you a box and you ship it back. And... Um, there's so there's so many companies like this that are really transforming the way cancer is treated that so much can be done remotely. Um, you don't need, you can be, you don't have to be at a major center to, to do gotcha. so many things that we used to have to do. Gotcha. Um, so I'll get, I want to get back into that, but I kind of want to get into some of this, what I consider to be, I don't know if it's fun, it's interesting, it's fascinating to me. Um, let's just, Let's just talk about what causes cancer here. Okay. This is um, some of the things that my assistant pulled out. Okay. And, and you know, obviously there's tobacco products. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, would you say like most of what you've seen as that an is oncologist? The is, most, um, that is the single biggest risk factor for most cancers that we see and the most preventable. And the most preventable just yep. by stopping using yep. it. Yep. Lung cancer, bladder cancer. There's a lot of, there's a handful of cancers that, are definitely linked to tobacco use. What about like younger, like younger, I'll call it like first generation tobacco products or consumption methods like the vapes. Have you seen um, cancers linked to vaping specifically or how that's affecting the body differently? I don't too new. That stuff takes time. It's not regulated either. So we don't know a lot. It's not regulated in the sense that tobacco is. So it, I mean, we, it's not regulated in the sense that drugs are. So we don't know a lot of the components of, of some of these. So 
it, do you, do you know much about like the history of like, cause shoot in the mid 1900s, early 1900s, tobacco cigarettes weren't, they didn't have cancer warnings on the label. Like, do you right. know how all that came to be throughout the years? Well, yeah, the surgeon general, I think it was in 19 early sixties. I forget the year, but the surgeon general was the first, he made some major report that stated that there's a risk, there's a link between tobacco and, and cancer and it was obviously a very political statement, but hmm. um, it was it wasn't until then. In fact, it used if you look in old magazines, you can find camel ads where doctors are saying this is the healthiest form, and more doctors smoke camels than other. <laughs> so it's changed a lot. Yeah, because I know, I know it's just a matter of time before whether it's tobacco vaping or these, you know, cannabis vape pens or all these different products. Um, it's only a matter of time before we figure out what that's doing to yeah. us, but it can't yeah. be good, right? Like it can't be good. Right. I agree. I don't, I don't think that there's, I don't like the idea of vaping just because you're putting things in your lungs that are not, you know, it's even actually even this air that we've been breathing this summer is probably right. not good for our lungs. Right. And so I, I, I don't love the idea of vaping. I would rather, you know, if it's, if it's, we, in Minnesota, we have medical, we have legalized medical cannabis and now recreational cannabis, but with, um, a lot of my patients have benefited from cannabis, especially when it comes to people with gastrointestinal cancers, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, um, that seems to help them with, with appetite, pain, anxiety, sleep, mm -hmm. um, but almost uniformly, they don't like the inhaled version versus the liquid and the gummies and other forms right. of that. Right. Gotcha. Interesting. Have you, I mean, is cannabis something that's linked to cancer? Not quite as much, huh? Not that I've seen. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, the smoking, depending on the consumption method, there's probably risks associated with it. I mean, yeah. whenever you're smoking something, you're probably doing some bit of damage to your lungs. Yeah, I don't, but, I can't, I don't think that many, I can't think of anything that you could inhale that would be good for you. Good for you, right? <laughs> right. Um, the other things here, um, obviously, the next big one is alcohol. Yep. That's a definitely, big, that's a big one. And that big, causes big a risk. number of problems besides yep. just cancer, liver, liver failure, but and a it's bunch definitely, of other stuff. definitely linked to cancer. Um, the other ones here, processed meats. That's, that, I was interested to see that on the list. It says consumption of processed meats, meats such as bacon. No, not bacon, <laughs> <laughs> bacon, sausages, hot dogs. They've been associated with an increased risk of, uh, col colorectal cancer. Yeah. Yep. And I, the data is not as strong there, but there's definitely been studies that show the association. And so okay. that's, there's probably something to it. And the processed red, processed red meat specifically. Yep. Yep. Um, and then the other ones here, ultraviolet radiation, you're talking skin cancer here, right. uh, tanning beds, that sort of stuff. Yep. Uh, and, uh, melanoma. Yep. That's like, you see a lot of that or we do actually. Yeah. We live in a part of the country where, um, a lot of Scandinavians settled and a certain skin type tends to be a risk factor for that. So that along with uh, sun exposure, for sure, we exactly. do see a lot of melanoma. You mentioned air pollution. Yep. Air pollution is, is a big part of it. Yep. Um, it's, I don't really know all these uh, terminologies, but yeah, whatever. There's like 
different things on here. This is diesel exhaust is one. Yeah. Um, and they're moving to more of like a tier, a different tier of diesel engines now that have this uh, uh, diesel exhaust fluid that is trying to be a little bit better on the environment. So mm-hmm. I think they're making advancements in that to try and offset it. Um, asbestos is linked. I mean, there's that they still are dealing with that in buildings. Um, I don't really know what asbestos is or, or how are they. So it's a fire retardant in old buildings. Okay. That they can't use anymore. They don't use anymore, but it's still out there. So yep. In older buildings associated with a type of cancer that affects the lining of the lungs called mesothelioma. Okay. Gotcha. And then, um, artificial sweeteners, uh, I hope not. I you hope, hope not? I hope that's not true. It's well, that's my assistant says it is. My okay. assistant says artificial sweeteners, um, particularly what is it? Sa- saccharin? Sa- saccharin. Yeah. Saccharin. Um, they've been they've been studied for their potential cause of cancer in animals, but evidence of similar effects in humans is limited. So maybe so, you'll have to stop drinking that diet coke. Maybe maybe that Shoot. what what would that be? Aspartame? Aspartame. Is it, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Um and then we mentioned air pollution, radon gas. Radon gas is the second biggest risk for lung cancer after smoking. So we live in a part of the country where there's a fair amount of radon gas. And so if you look at a map, um, I think the U.S. Geological Society will put a map that shows radon levels across the country. We're at a high, we have high levels here. And so when somebody sells a house, they'll need to get a radon test. And often there's a lot of houses in town that have radon mitigation systems. It's a radioactive, odorless, colorless gas that we can find in basements, especially as it kind of seeps up through the soil, through the shower water. And if there's high levels, then you'll have mitigation systems put in your house to get rid of those levels and to to basically vent that radon gas outside your house. Gotcha. So the other one here is uh, that I don't understand at all is hormone replacement therapy. So we talk about that. Yeah, after menopause for women a lot of times in the past they would take estrogen pills and so that's basically in 2004 that stopped because of this big nurses study but hormone replacement therapy definitely raises the risk of breast cancer and so in 2004 i think it was 2004 the they stopped um as a general rule recommending it for most people most women in menopause and we saw a corresponding drop in breast cancer rates after that happened that that drop kind of was obvious a few years later and then um charred foods this was a this was an interesting one for me to see here but like uh you know, some people really like their barbecues, charring yeah. those burgers on the yeah. grill. Apparently, that might not be the best thing. Yeah, that, I, I don't know much data about that, but I've heard the same thing. I don't know. Um, I don't know how strong that that data is, but I've heard the same thing over the years. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. And then this one transitions really well into the back of my sheet here because okay. we're going to get into some conspiracy Excellent. theories. Those are fun. Yes, I love. Yes. I mean, like, I love conspiracy theories. But um, pesticides and herbicides. Yeah. Uh, Certain pesticides and herbicides like glyphosate um, found in Roundup have raised concerns about their potential increase to cancer. However, regulatory agencies have differing views on their safety. I think, you know, I mentioned I was an epidemiology degree um, at Iowa, Masters of Public Health, and we would see this. So I'm working with, his name is Chuck Lynch. He was the head of the cancer registry. He would get phone calls and requests to do a cancer cluster study 
where if somebody in the state, there was a number of people that lived in the same area that had the same cancer. And so they'd, they'd do this epidemiologic study to see if there's an increased risk. And almost always there wasn't. It, almost always you could explain this with statistics and just chance. But I don't know. I, I really, from an epidemiology perspective, it's really hard to show these risks because you're dealing with people who are particularly farmers or agriculture communities, which are small populations. There's thousands of different types of chemicals. The exposures are hard to show because, you know, if you have an exposure, it's probably decades before the cancer would develop. It's really hard to show that association. And so they've done um, studies, multi-continent studies, trying to show these things, and they really can't prove it. They can't pinpoint they it. They can't pinpoint it. I agree. I'm I'm leery of pesticides and herbicides the same. I, I feel like there's there's got to be some health risks here. But whether there is... You know, if, whether we can pinpoint a specific chemical and exposure, I don't know if we'll ever be able to do that. Mm. that. That being said, you know, we live in a part of the country where there's high rates of melanoma, high rates of lymphoma. These are things that we don't, you know, there's not a good reason that a certain part of the country should have higher rates of a particular cancer like that. Then you start to look at things like environmental exposures or um, industry exposures like this. So gotcha. it, it definitely raises a question, but yeah. I don't think we have good data yet. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into even a little bit more speculation here because okay, this excellent. is where it gets Let's a little, this, this is where it gets this. fun for me. So the term conspiracy theory mm -hmm. was originally, I think it was first used in a um, letter to the editor in the New York times in like the mid to late 1800s after the Lincoln assassination. Uh, okay. And it was, um, you know, throughout the eight, late 1800s, early 1900s, basically up until the JFK assassination, it was not really a, I don't want to call it like a derogatory term or like a discrediting term, but it was more just a, a term that was kind of used. And it wasn't really like used often, but it was just something that was more like accepted or like, oh yeah, that we're going to just question these things. Yep. And it wasn't until, you know, it was, uh, what, 1960. Three or 62 when JFK was assassinated. Mm -hmm. And then in 1967, the CIA issued a document that basically really, really made that term uh, conspiracy theorist, more of like a widespread, wide known mm -hmm. thing. And they really wanted to do um, the, the work of discrediting people who have a distrust towards the government. Right. I mean, so that was the CIA in like the whatever 1960s, late 1960s that really um, they wanted to alienate these people who had a distrust in the government Discred and discredit, and them. discredit them. And so I am of the belief that every conspiracy theory, some of them I call them conspiracy truths, <laughs> you know, but like, Everything I think has snippets of truth to it. Sure. I mean, people don't come up with these theories out of nothingness, but a lot of them are also a little bit more far-fetched, unproven ideas. We can't really know too much about them, but once you fall into that, uh, they, they did this, they did a really good job of 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 alienating people who think different because once you fall into that conspiracy theory realm, it's pretty hard to get out of that, especially yeah. as a person who's getting yeah. into those ideas and that way of thinking. Sure. So, yep. um, but one of the things here that I want to talk about is, um, 
let's just talk about cancer cure suppression first okay. and the and the theories that um, suggest pharmaceutical companies and medical professionals are withholding cures for cancer or a cure all for cancer or something like that. What are your views on that? No, I mean, I, it doesn't make sense to me, but I, I do understand where this comes from. If you think about, if you could give somebody a cure and it would be, um, and they'd be cured, um, then you wouldn't make money off them anymore. So I think right. that's where that comes from. That being said, that is not, you know, I know oncologists, that is not how they think, that is not how they operate. This is, it doesn't make any sense from my perspective. It's, this has been a really exciting time to be an oncologist because when I started in 2005, I look at the medications that we were giving then compared to the medications we're giving now, and it's, for example, a common type of kidney cancer. We had nothing that worked, and I just talked to somebody who had that cancer last week. And we have 15 different drugs that we can offer. And mm -hmm. even though it doesn't cure metastatic kidney cancer, this person is going to live for many years. But in 2005, they wouldn't have. So, I, yeah, I don't, I, I think that the, you know, the, it's an interesting medical system that we do more to provide the cures and the advances for medicine in the United States than anywhere else. And it's because of the capitalist system. I think the incentives that provide um, the motivation to make some of these advances. But I really think that if there was a cure, if there was something like that, it would be right. It would not be suppressed. It, you almost wouldn't be able to. It'd be like you too couldn't. big of a thing to suppress exactly. it. And I think that the you know uh, the average person who doesn't maybe think too deep or think too far into the can the cancer. I mean, there's a when you say cancer, we're talking right. a wide variety yeah. of different and so different the, conditions. The idea of curing cancer is it's, kind of there's like not going to be one exactly. cure all. Like exactly we might right. see breakthroughs in certain specific types of cancer, yeah. and I think that you probably are yeah, seeing treatments sure. or I don't want to say cures, but well, there's an example. So chronic myelogenous leukemia. When I was a medical student, I remember there being a pregnant woman who was in her mid twenties, and she was mid pregnancy. And she needed to wait until she delivered to safely take the treatments because the treatments then were terrible in 2000, what was it, 1999 maybe. And um, now we have medications that we expect people to live their full life expectancy. And back then the life expectancy was three years. And I don't know if she survived hmm. because she had to wait seven months or six months to deliver and then get treated. So it, it's it's a totally different disease. Yes, right. people are taking a pill for the rest of their life, but they're staying alive. Gotcha. So. Um, the other one, and and as someone who has worked with a lot of chemotherapy patients, this one, you you know, there's a there's the theory out there that uh, chemotherapy chemotherapy is intentionally toxic and ineffective, and that alternative treatments are being suppressed. In reality, this is my assistant speaking. In reality, chemotherapy is a widely accepted treatment method with proven uh, efficiency for many types of cancer and alternative treatments. Uh, so this theory often lacks scientific support. But there's yeah, so the, so there's. I mean, if you look at just the evolution of what I've seen in the last eighteen years. In 2005, we were giving a lot of chemotherapy. We were giving a lot of chemotherapy for breast cancer patients, and now we have a genetic test that tells us, do you need chemo or not? So we're probably giving a third the amount of chemotherapy we used to. If you look at a common 
type of leukemia, we were given chemotherapy and pill form and IV. And now there's no chemotherapy that we typically give for that because it's all these targeted therapies that have improved side effect profiles. They're easy for people to take. They're way more effective than the chemo was. So we still give chemotherapy, but we're definitely giving less. And it's more, we're, we're giving it in situations where we're more certain they need it. Gotcha. And then there's also kind of tying in with all that. There's also the, um, the theories or beliefs that certain industries, the farmers, big pharma, agriculture, um, certain manufacturing industries have been accused of causing specific cancers. Um, I think there's the, I mean, I, I don't want to get too into believing something or speaking of something I don't know much about, but I've always had the belief that big pharma has, they don't necessarily have your best interest in mind when it comes to, you know, you can't profit off of a healthy body, yeah. right? No, so it's a kind of, yeah, it's, it's a complicated relationship because they've provided so much of the advances right. that I can provide at the same time. When you look at, you know, politically, I don't necessarily agree with some of the things that they, they want. You know, you look at the cost of Revlimid. Revlimid's a, a myeloma drug, and it's gone up in price, even though it's, you know, it's, it's gone up in price three times the amount since it's come out. And it's like $700 a pill. And people need that to stay alive. So you, um, it was yesterday, I think, or the day before, where Medicare chose... 10 drugs that they can help um, negotiate the price of. And before that, it was illegal for Medicare to negotiate the price. And that's because of the big pharma lobby. And I feel like as much as they do good, they also, they're not, they're not, some of the things are not aligned with our best interests in the population. I mean, when it comes to, if they were truly looking only for public health, they would think differently, but they're a company. They have a profit motive, motive and so it's, it's a complicated relationship. Yep. I agree. Yep. I have mixed feelings. Yep, yep. There's definitely uh, that's something that 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 outside of just not necessarily cancer specific, but big pharma in the cost of uh, prescription drugs, uh, insulin, mm -hmm. all that stuff is is definitely. I mean, there's organizations that are popping up specifically to combat that and fight that. Yep. Um, so, yeah, we, we found too, that just being a rural cancer center, we needed two full-time employees to, to work with insurance because of this bureaucracy and how expensive hmm. these drugs were and, and, and prior authing and doing all these, all these extra steps because of, um, the costs of these drugs and trying to get these affordable for people. Let's talk about vaccines. Okay. Cause there's, uh, I mean, th again, it's not like. Just like everything, there's uh, so many different vaccines out there. And uh, one of the things that I thought was crazy, I don't know what year it happened, but I know that there is, um, and I'm probably going to get flagged now. My I, Now that I said <laughs> vaccines and we're talking, I'm sure this is going to get some flag on Spotify, but um, the there you don't have to go, you don't have to jump through the hoops and prove vaccines the way that you used to right i mean there are certain vaccines so that can the, that can so you're talking about covid so we had i'm not necessarily cold not necessarily covid so now COVID, i'm definitely flat now we're definitely flat yeah, now we said yeah. that <laughs> but that was so that was a unique situation because there was an emergency declaration so the fda had a different approval process and so it, that those vaccines many of them were tested more than 
um, than previous vaccines if you look at the number of patients involved in the testing. But that being said, it's it, it, COVID was a unique time. Uh, it specifically, the theory, the theory that's presented here specifically mentions uh, HPV okay. vaccine. And so, that's just one, you know, one so of them. So HPV vaccine yep. is, HPV, human papillomavirus, is a vaccine, sorry, it, it's, a, it's a virus that's associated with certain cancers. And so we can see this with cervical cancer. We can see this with head and neck cancer. We can see this with a, a handful of cancers. And when we find HPV with a head and neck cancer, we actually treat it a little bit differently. And it's good to know this because it, it, it's a little bit more treatable. Um, with the vaccine, the idea is um, kid, teenagers is kind of the target age for the vaccine. I'm not sure why. I don't know why adults couldn't get it. I guess it doesn't make sense to me necessarily, but um, the vaccine has been shown to lower rates of cervical cancer and head and neck cancers. Okay. Yep. And that's what it says here too. It, it says that it has been, it has been shown to, to prevent, you know, cervical cancer and other related cancers. So, yep. um, and man, I could, I could go down a rabbit hole, but I'm, we're not going to talk anymore about vaccines. <sighs> okay. And listen okay. to some RFK Jr. If you guys want to hear about vaccines, you know, how about uh, radiation or cell phone, cell phone cancer, cell phone radiation? Uh, is that a thing? I don't know. I, if you, there is a website that Wi-Fi, shows, you know, Wi-Fi, all I, that yeah, stuff. I don't think Wi-Fi, but um, with there could be something to the radiation with cell phones. Um, there, there's a website. It's not a government website, but it's a nonprofit organization that shows every cell phone and the amount of radiation associated with it. And so the iPhones, which I have, tend to have a little bit more than some of the others. But I, I don't know. I don't know if there's, I. I you know, given the option, I'm probably going to text. Or I'm not going to call. You know, I I don't. I agree. I don't. Huh. I don't know. I um. It, it there could be something to that, but I don't know that there's enough data yet. Right, and that's basically another thing. I mean, we're just shoot cell phones, smartphones specifically. Like, I know I would say most people probably. I, there's something to a charging cell phone versus an unplugged cell phone too. Like, you know, you can, you can do tests on a phone. Like when it's plugged in, it's radiating more than when it's not plugged in. So if there's one simple step that I think people should take is don't sleep with your cell phone plugged in right next to your head. I mean, yeah. move that thing to a, to a nightstand far away from your yep. head when you're sleeping. Um, some people, turn off their Wi-Fi or have like Wi-Fi blockers. I mean, there's, I think with time, yeah. again, just like cigarettes back when, I think with time, all we're going to figure out all different kinds of things that technology is doing yeah. to, I mean, we've got the other one on here that it mentions is um, microwaves, air fryers. There's these different things. I mean, microwaves have been around for long enough that, I don't know if you know about the link to that at all, or I'm not familiar with that either. But okay. I, you know, some of these, like you think about brain cancers, and I see brain cancers in young people, hmm. and it's not for most for most cancers, it takes years and decades to to show the risk. So if somebody's, I really don't think there's enough evidence to show any of these necessarily, but it's also important that we can, you know, it's harder to prove the absence of something. It's 
So yeah, it, so than it is to shoot to prove the yeah. presence of something. Yeah, so I just realized trying. we got off the rails here. We're at fifty-one minutes. Okay. Usually my okay. episodes <laughs> go about an hour, but I don't really care. We're gonna. This is an interesting topic to me, and yeah. and if you've got time, we're yeah. just gonna keep we're talking, and this episode will probably go for a little bit. But how about genetically modified GMO foods? Not um, that I'm aware of. Not that you're aware of. Okay, but again, you get into changing things as as yep. things change. I mean, we're yep. getting into uh lab grown meats yeah. stuff like that like yeah. all that stuff we're kind of you're kind of a guinea we're kind of guinea pigs yeah. in this in well, a sense it it does surprise me though that how much we know we don't know that much about nutrition i mean there's a lot of there's a lot we have so much to learn when it comes to nutrition in our bodies and how we how how it affects us um there are there has been decades of research but i just feel that we should have a better understanding of nutrition and how it affects us than we currently do. Right. Right. And that's going to come in time yeah. in time. Yeah. So, and that just touched on, I mean, I'm sure there's so many more conspiracies out there about disease and all that stuff, but I yeah. f- figured it'd be interesting to pick your mind about yeah. that since you're someone who deals yeah. with this stuff all the time. But right. uh, let's get back on the rural cancer.org and kind of wrap and yeah. kind of wrap up that side yeah. of it. Um, you mentioned maybe a rebranding. Yeah. So I really think, so I met with a, um, marketer this morning and Emily is we're meeting with somebody next week and just looking at like how can we best put our ideas out there and ruralcancer.org is great and it's a great website address and the reason that was there is we wanted people to know how to find us and so that's the the, the website um, I think we were looking at more of a rural cancer institute we have you know we have people who are interested in helping us with policy helping us uh, policy recommendations, helping us with um, social uh, media. And so I think if we uh, found a better way to put our message out there, our website will still be the same, but I think we um, we're in the process of finding something that might fit a little better, something along the lines of rural cancer Institute. Gotcha. And then keep the realcancer.org yep. website, yep. but but just kind of brand mm-hmm. it outside of, yep. so you don't have a dot org or yep. whatever in your branding. Exactly. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, and just touch on em- employees. You mentioned that you have a board of directors. How many people are involved in this? Five. Just five. five board, yep. Okay. And we have, so it's been really fun. It's um, uh, at Lakewood and Staples. I worked with a couple of medical students and they're on board and helping us and doing projects and, and presenting research. And it's, it's just been a really energetic group. And I love that. Um, when I was in Iowa, um, when I was in the School of Public Health, I remember going there and finding this really engaged group of people who are super energetic and really excited. Got to get this spider. I see that spider. See he's a big guy, too. Yeah, you better, you better get him. Yeah, where did my paper towels go? Here they are. <laughs> um, talk, so yeah. talk, talk about products and services or like services that you guys then, like your highlighted services that you guys are mainly trying to accomplish here. So Consulting or so advocacy? Advocacy, yep. Yeah. So... Um, the consulting would be more the reaching rural, and that is uh, still a work in progress. And I'm you got this, he, got you got it. it. I got it. You got it. I got it. Good. He was good. a gnarly. That's a that big was, gnarly looking spider, spider too. And I'm oh my god, to get Lundy's pest solution in here to take care of these spiders. <laughs> but yeah, mostly advocacy, and then um, it, it's uh, and that's really the focus of that. But then the consulting group really is more trying to help individual hospitals solve these problems. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Um, and then anything else you want the people to know about, I mean, about realcancer.org. And then we're going to get into some, uh, do you guys do events at all? Um, so we did. So rural cancer awareness day, June 4th, 
Um, last year we had, or this year, 2023, we had Governor Walls declare June 4th Rural Cancer Awareness Day huh. and Governor Laura Kelly in Kansas dis- uh, discre- uh, declared Rural Cancer Awareness Day. That day happens to be Zach's birthday. Zach is the medical student who was diagnosed with the stage three melanoma on his 21st birthday. He's on our board of directors. When he was diagnosed, he was in college. He had to drive 900 miles to MD Anderson in Houston back and forth for treatments regularly. And so that's the reason we chose that day. And so we're really hoping to make that our annual event. And um, we have a rural cancer awareness ribbon. Uh, Check it on the website. And um, we're working on and revamping all those sites. Um, What would you, I guess, like just kind of, to kind of wrap it up, like, do you have like a public service announcement or like what would you want the people to know about the cancer industry, what you guys have going on? I really think that it's important to emphasize local medical care. And it's, re- it's really important for, I mean, I know I, what, you, what you're doing for the business community in Fergus, I think is really important. Um, I think that healthcare is really important. So if somebody's going to bring a, their business to a community, they want strong healthcare. And so my biggest thing is advocating for local health care. And cancer care is traditionally something that's not in rural local areas. And so that's been our focus. We want to we want that to be more common. And so knowing that it can happen, I think there's good examples out there, but they're rare. And so just as an example, when we replaced our linear accelerator at Lake Region, the rep from Chicago came out and he said, you're one of only two hospitals in our six-state region that has an independent cancer center. The other one is in downtown Chicago. So it's super rare in that situation, but can be done. And it's really good for the community to have the local care. Gotcha. And so, yeah, rural cancer, It's um, we're just trying to get the message out there, and it's been a fun journey so far. Awesome. Well, it sounds like a cool thing you guys are a part of, and I'm glad that there's people that are taking on yep. – the issues and not just forgetting about all of us who live out here in the sticks, yeah, you know, exactly. you gotta, you gotta take care of everyone, not but, just the, the people in the populous areas. Yep. Cause um, rumor has it, people are moving out of the cities. They're trying to get away from, I it. think, that's true. <laughs> I think, I think there, it really does seem that there's yeah, more and more of that. I do. I do think it, um, let's get into, uh, biggest mistakes you've made throughout your career. Biggest mistakes. So, um, or personal life. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, I, my career. So I graduated high school at 17. For the next 17 years, I was in college and residency and fellowship. 17 years here at Lake Region. And then now it's the next 17 years. And so wow. I feel like I um, it definitely feels like there's a ton of opportunity and I'm super excited about all the opportunity. Um, when I went to that MBA program, um, I wish I'd have done it 10 years earlier. I wish I would have done this rural cancer thing 10 years earlier. I, I feel like I was always waiting for the right time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's not, there's never a right time. Right. And just actually doing it. One of the things that was really helpful for me was this group um, called ILT Academy. And they work with Greater Fergus Falls. Yeah. And it's really more of an entrepreneurial program. And it's great. And I love that uh, there's so much energy in this group. When I finished my MBA, the MBA was great for healthcare and for learning to be a manager or a director or something in a health system. But this was totally different. And I really love this culture. And I wish that, you know, communities like Fergus and others would embrace this more just because it, it, it empowers people to 
to to do something on their own, to do um, what you're doing. I mean, doing something on your own for the benefit of the community. And I feel like that's such an important role. And you know, there's so many things that if I'm trying to recruit somebody to a town, uh, there's so many quality of life things that are so important, like the outstate and toast and fable farmer and some of these like small businesses like that, that, that are so important. And then, you know, major employers, of course. And then, um, so I feel like that long answer to the question. Uh, I wish I would have, I wish I would have taken yeah. these initiatives that I'm doing now. Yeah. A long time ago. That ties into, that ties into a lot of the best business advice I've heard from people, which is just do it, just yeah. get it done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the mistake is often just waiting for the perfect time because it doesn't not, exist. Yeah. It does not yep. exist. So, yep. how about your best business advice? Um, so, I can't underestimate the culture of an organization, and so I feel like the differentiator right now in healthcare is culture. And so, when people are feel valued and empowered, that is that attracts good people and people, if they don't feel like they, if there's not a good culture, it's really hard to, it, it shows in everybody. And so when, when a, when a patient walks in the front door of a hospital and or clinic and sees an enthusiastic person at the front desk and everybody, it, the culture is so, it's so important. And with COVID and everything else that's been going on, it's been really tough. Healthcare culture just is not good across the board. So I, it, it's, I would say, and I think it was Peter Drucker who said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm. That's so true. You can have all the strategic planning you want, but unless you have a culture and people are excited to be there and they're all on the same team, it doesn't matter. That's awesome. I like that. Culture is culture is way more important than strategy. <laughs> it it is for sure. For sure, it yeah. is. Um, so I'm guessing the name and the name says it all. But the people can get a hold of you at ruralcancer.org. Yeah, That's the best wait, way to find out more wait, and get a hold wait of you. At ruralcancer.org. Wait at ruralcancer.org. Wait at ruralcancer.org is an email for yep. you. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, what else do you want to say on the way out of here, man? I mean, I just want to say I didn't know about your podcast, and Emily Westergaard told me about it, and I think that what you're doing is super important, and I like that it's it's basic, it's almost a, a history of Fergus Falls from a business perspective. The business the the business sector of Fergus is um, it's a story that needs to be told. There's a lot of history in those podcast. I've enjoyed listening to them and I just started listening to a few days ago. Hmm. Um, so I don't know how you get your name out there more and what you're doing out there more, but I think it's really important and you could expand to Ottertown County easily. Hmm. Um, I have a few names for people. I think it'd be good for you to interview. Yeah. I'd love to get so, some contact information yeah. from people. That's how I find, that's how I got your information. I mean, mm-hmm. Emily, it was like, Oh, you got Wade's cell phone number. Yeah. Give it to me. Yep. You know, yep. like that's the best way to find yep. new guests is yep. by you guys getting in the chair and, yep. um, yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes. I'm yeah. excited to see where it goes. I appreciate that. I really yeah. appreciate those words. So um, if you guys do want to get a hold of the show, ffbspodcast at gmail.com is the best way to do it. Or just hit me up on Facebook or come into Outstate if I'm working. But uh, I appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate my sponsors, Stumbino, Swan Lake, Elevate, Victor Lundin's, uh, Hotel 8, Biffley's Bookmark. You guys are all uh, an important part of this too. So thanks, thanks for listening and thanks for uh, continuing to be here, guys. Thanks, Jake. Yeah.